At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I sat down with Erin Jean McDowell, our resident baking wizard at Food 52. She's also the star of our hit YouTube series, Bake It Up a Notch, and the author of now three joyful, encouraging cookbooks on baking. As the mind behind the book on pie, Erin is known as a phone-a-friend whenever crusts are slumping or fillings are misbehaving. So, with pie season peaking this week, we wanted to hear her most asked pie questions and the advice she gives to fix them. But because her newest cookbook is savory baking, we also wanted to talk about how Erin gets the fluffiest dinner rolls and what she does with all of those Thanksgiving leftovers, too. All of these classic Aaron pep talks are in this episode for you to enjoy while you're prepping your own pie dough or plane, train, and automobiling to see family and friends. But first, let's hear from Aaron about a feeling from her childhood that she has been chasing in her recipes since then. I remember at a really young age watching my mom um, slice tomatoes and putting salt, but also this like generous amount of black pepper on the tomatoes. Mm. And she would bring this platter of tomatoes to the table and it was like this glistening, beautiful. I mean, of course, they were homegrown tomatoes and they were, you know, they were perfect. They were in season, all of those things. But this just tiny little bit of extra that she did to it that made something that was already pretty perfect so good and so memorable and I actually think for a lot of my career, I've kind of been chasing something that's simple, that's mm. so good. Um, and I just remember it. And I think about it a lot that, you know, she could have just sliced the tomatoes and put them out for people to build sandwiches or whatever we were having that day. But instead, you know, she put in that little bit of extra care to it. And um, that's something that I think about a lot when I'm in the kitchen, both the simplicity and that, like, putting that little bit of extra care in something that you're doing to just make it extra special. Are there any examples of ways that you have done your own very simple version of, you know, black peppering the tomatoes recently that come to mind? Well, I really am enjoying this one recipe that's from Savory Baking um, that I had a lot of fun creating where it's still a pie, but it's one of the least complicated, least fussy pies that I do where... It's some rough puff pastry that's baked on its own. It's baked between two baking sheets. Already I'm saying rough puff pastry, so you're like, that's not simple, Erin. <laughs> that's not just peppering the tomatoes. But 
you bake it on its own. You don't have to worry about crimping or filling or par baking or anything. You just bake it on its own and then you put toppings on it afterwards. And I really remember that the amount of satisfaction that everyone got from eating it was as much as if I had made a much more labor intensive pie. So even though it still has a bit of effort in it, it was a really fun way to kind of deconstruct something that normally is many more steps and much more difficult, but this still delivers that same result. And it was uh, really, really satisfying and, and a similar black pepper sort of vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that because it just takes, it takes any questions that you might have about okay, was this the right amount of filling? Was my you know, bottom crust done enough? Was, you know, did I partake enough? All of those questions are completely gone, even though you help us answer all those questions. But like to ease in and just really focus on getting that rough puff just right. And also then a lot of flexibility too. When you're just putting things on afterwards, suddenly it can be kind of whatever's in the fridge or whatever's in season. And that was something that I had a lot of fun trying to do in savory baking in general, was trying to make it as flexible as possible. Like cooking has more of a reputation for being off the cuff, whereas baking is a little bit more by the book. But I think that savory baking really is the perfect intersection of both, where you might still have to respect some of the baking rules, but you can customize things so easily to suit your taste, suit your preferences and suit what's seasonally available, readily available on sale at the market that week or in the grocery store that week, all of those things so that you can just be making, you know, exactly what it is that you want to make. Is that what you were going for with Savory Baker? Or was that just kind of one of the benefits that came up along the way that you were excited about? Like, what was it that made you want to write Savory Baking in the first place? Well, as you know very well, I have wanted to write this book for a very long time. I'm really passionate about the savory side of baking for a few reasons. And one is that I think that there's a lot of flexibility and creativity to be found. Um, the other is it's really one of my favorite ways to bake, which is not to say I don't love desserts. I, I do so much. But there's this funny thing where desserts are almost part of my work brain. And when I get to bake and bake in a savory way, I feel more like I'm baking for fun. It doesn't feel as much always like that work side of my brain. And I started noticing that in my spare time when I had to bake for family and friends or when I was baking for colleagues even, I remember I went to um, the Cherry Bomb Jubilee one year and there were going to be so many wonderful people there and I was supposed to bake something. And I found that I was always skewing to the savory side when I had the choice and that's what I call in the book my salt tooth. And my salt tooth is really the reason that I wanted to write this book because it's one of my favorite ways to bake. I love eating these baked goods. And I have obviously my last book, um, the book on pie, I have a very deep personal connection to pie. And that is 100% just, it's, it's a very big part of me. But when you talk about um, kind of what you want and what you crave, I was typically craving these more salty, savory baked goods. So I think when you are writing a book, one of the things that is so important is that you're really, really passionate about the subject. And I just, I love these savory bakes, love making them, love eating them. So that was really the core of what kind of lit my fire to write this book. Um, but then as I got started working on the project, some of the byproducts were this creativity that you can get, which I always like to encourage people to get creative with their bakes. And also 
the fact that savory baking is far from a trend. You know, around the world, there are so many savory baked goods. And in a lot of places, there are more savory baked goods than there are sweet baked goods. And so for me, it was really fun to kind of dive into and explore, you know, the range of savory baking and get to treat it as a single subject, as a deep dive, which is, of course, is my favorite thing to do. When you're writing a book, as we know, you're living with it for years. You're, you're spending your every waking second, <laughs> many, many uh, parts of those years thinking about this book and like revisiting it over and over and over. So I can see why the innate passion for it and then the curiosity about it are just key. And, you know, it's fun. That's the best part when you get to do a subject that you're, you're loving experimenting with. That's when some of the best, most creative ideas come because you're also having fun doing it too, which I definitely did. I ate so many cheesy things. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us about some of your favorite cheesy things or other savory baked discoveries that are in the book? Uh, yes, I love uh, I love the cheese stuffed corn muffin. Or there's actually a few muffins that I opted to stuff with a cube of cheese. You know, you don't have to do it, but it is so fun. And um, the corn muffins in particular, I stuffed them with a cube of cheddar cheese, which obviously makes them really special, but I think also takes them kind of away from being a, just a breakfast food and into kind of like savory appetizer territory. But muffins are so easy. So it, unlike a lot of appetizers that might involve, you know, wrapping little things in puff pastry or um, making sure that it's piping hot. One of the things that's so great about these is you just mix them in one bowl and when they come out of the oven, because the cheese is in the center, it really stays warm and gooey for a long time because it takes a long time for that muffin to cool. And obviously it's cooling from the outside in. So you could make these muffins before people came over to watch a game or, you know, whatever it is that you're wanting to have some little savory bites around for. That sounds incredible. And part of why we brought you here today, Erin, is because we wanted you to make us very hungry for flaky things and cheese and and gooey things <laughs> that are salty and amazing. Um, but also because you are an expert on so many things related to Thanksgiving, of course, pie, but also savory baking. And you have this amazing, like very energetic following who loves baking and loves baking all the time and probably runs into some bugaboos. So what we, we want to talk about some of your most asked Thanksgiving questions and some of your your tips and solves for those things. Um, but first, I would love to hear what Thanksgiving is going to be like for you this year, since this is your first year back home in Kansas, right? Yes, yes, it is. I moved to Kansas City earlier this year, and I have not been home for Thanksgiving in I actually should do the math, but I, I think it's been, you know, even longer since before the pandemic. This is obviously a very busy time of year for me, typically work-wise. And when I didn't live close to home, it could be sometimes difficult to get away because I would have so much work, you know, in all the days leading up to Thanksgiving. One of my family members affectionately calls it my Super Bowl. And it kind of is, you know, it's just like a really, really big week, the whole week. And even on Thanksgiving Day, um, obviously, I love spending time with my family, but one of my favorite things is getting the deluge of pie photographs from everybody that I receive. It's just honestly one of the happiest days of the year for me is seeing how many people have successfully baked a pie, um, whether it's their very first one or whether, you know, the, the book has kind of got them on a pie baking roll, as it were, pun very much intended. Um <laughs> This year, I'm going to be home. It's going to be wonderful. 
My new home is not quite equipped to host myself yet. I think next year will be, I hope, my first year hosting Thanksgiving. But this year I will still be going over to my parents' house, which is where we usually have it, but doing a lot of the cooking. My husband and I both um, help my mom and the three of us handle uh, a, the bulk of the cooking. And I did save some Concord grapes this year in the freezer for one of my favorite pies, the Concord grape pie. I always love to have one of those at Thanksgiving if I can. So I'm still mulling over what the other pies will be this year. But we always have my um, the clover leaf rolls, which that recipe is on Food 52 also. That's been also such a fun experience the past couple of years, something that's literally been passed down from my great-grandma um, now being made in so many other people's homes at Thanksgiving. It's so fun to see those traditions kind of pass along, especially through the route of food. It's very fulfilling this time of year. It feels like seeing a lot of culmination of work, you know, come come out and getting to see everyone's beautiful bake. So my Thanksgiving will be a lot of rolls, a lot of pie, a lot of family, and a lot of everyone else's pies, too, and getting to absorb all of that and take it all in. And for so many people, it is the one day a year they make pie. Even for myself, I love making pie, but it's something that I forget to make. For myself, for a lot of people who follow you, like the fact that you are there to answer every question is such a comfort. Yeah, that's one of the things about Thanksgiving is there's a lot of pressure on it too, right? Mm -hmm. Because you want to impress your family and friends. You want to make these traditions. So uh, I always like to be able to answer lots and lots of questions this time of year. I try to get to as many as I can. But also the same questions do get asked over and over. And so uh, I'd love to debunk some of those, you know, at long last, because I do feel like, you know, you start to see a pattern in what problems people are having kind of on all fronts, for sure. Well, should we get into it? I'm ready. Let's debunk. <laughs> okay, so we polled your audience for what savory bake they were most excited to tackle for Thanksgiving this year. And the thing that most people were jumping for was... The Parker House Rolls. I love a Parker House Roll. Um, can you share what you think defines a Parker House Roll and what are some of the, maybe the most important tips that you would want people to know to have success? It was, you know, originated from a place called the Parker House Inn, I believe. And it is a very light, fluffy, buttery roll. And the original Parker House Rolls were um, kind of formed to be flattened out, brushed with butter, and folded over. So the idea was when it arrived to you warm at your table, it was already pre-buttered, essentially, and it was this very delicious, soft roll. That really encapsulates what people love about it so much, is the soft, the fluffy, and the buttery. So in my Parker House Roll recipe, I do include a variation in savory baking, to do the traditional folded roll because it is very yummy. So I encourage people to try that. It's also really nice to do that with like an herb butter or something to kind of flavor that butter that's on the inside. But my favorite way to make them is actually just as a round roll because the fluff to crust ratio is at its maximum. <laughs> so um, the, the other key, I think, to like the most perfect Parker House rolls is uh, a thrice butter basting, not once, not twice, but three times, giving nice. them a little bit of melted butter on the top end of baking, 
about halfway through brushing them one more time. And then when they come out of the oven, giving them one more brush. These, because they're fluffy, are not going to have the butter on the inside. So giving them a little bit of extra butteriness on the outside, I think, makes them extra special. And what does buttering them at the beginning, middle, and end do? Does it just kind of deepen the butteriness or does it do other things in the bake? Yes. It, so for one, it does promote a small amount of browning, but butter doesn't have the same capability to brown something that an egg wash does because there's so many more proteins in that egg wash that are going to brown more evenly over the surface where it's brushed. Obviously, also butter is very soft and liquid, so it has a tendency to melt down the sides even when it's already melted. It doesn't like to stay on something rounded. So brushing it a few times during baking is going to contribute to some browning and it's going to add flavor. The butter that was on the top is also going to help promote that little bit of crust. So when we add some a little bit at the beginning of baking, then it kind of starts to dry out and brown a little bit. Then we add a little bit more halfway through. It does the same thing. Now, the butter on the back end that we put when it comes out of the oven, that's just for flavor and enjoying that like extra little bit of butteriness. And for anybody who doesn't necessarily want that greasiness at their table, they could maybe skip the final brush of butter because the, the rolls will be more dry if you don't do that. But, uh, you know, it just sort of depends what you're doing. It's certainly not required to baste three times, but this is one time that I typically do. You don't have to do all three, but when you do all three, it's a special occasion. I feel like Thanksgiving is a special occasion. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And then, of course, optional, maybe not optional, buttering at the table, too, once you tear them open and you've got this like steamy, fluffy roll. And I really like these rolls because they are actually not as intimidating as I think people might think. The real key that is helpful for people understanding is that this is an enriched dough. Enriched doughs mean that they have something like butter or eggs or milk in them. And those are usually the things that are responsible for making something so light and fluffy. So also think about like challah, how we've got that Mm -hmm. fluffy, beautiful texture or brioche. These are very enriched doughs and enriched doughs take longer to rise. So the main thing to remember is that these Parker House rolls are very simple. You're going to get them into the pan way quicker than you think, but you need to allow enough time for them to rise or they're not going to be as light and fluffy as you'd like for them to be. And the good news is if you put them in a warm place, if you've got your oven on and you just kind of keep them near there, it's going to go pretty quick. But I always like to bring this up, especially because as we near the colder months of the year, at least in some places in the country and world, um, you know, an, uh, an enriched dough can sit on your countertop for a very long time if the temperature is really cold, because it will really take its time to proof and ferment and get that light fluffiness. So my best advice is always to let them rise until they appear visibly puffy. And I know that seems like it might be a difficult thing to identify, but with these Parker House rolls, it's pretty easy because you bake them in a pan. And when you first put them in the pan, they will not be touching. Towards the end of rise time, they're going to be touching. So that is going to be kind of your sign like, okay, they've risen enough. Now I can bake them. And then, of course, they rise even more in the oven and become they completely grow together and become these delicious sort of pull apart roll situation. Oh, and then get the little like the side channels that don't brown that are just so soft and feathery. 
My favorite. I, I, it's sort mm-hmm. of like how brownies, you want all edges on Parker House rolls. You almost want all side piece, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like I have to make Parker House rolls this year. I hope that you do, and I hope that you love them, and they will make the best leftover sandwiches if you have any leftover. Yeah, more reason to double up the recipe. <laughs> so, big topic, pie. And this one, we were brave and asked uh, the audience what was their biggest problem and it was like almost equally split. There are lots of things that come up can come yes. up with pie. So I feel like to do it justice, we should we should share your best tips for each of these um, because you can save us from all of them. <laughs> I know that pie is scary, and I think that that's one of the interesting things. As you were right, it was split uh, like thirty three percent, thirty three percent, thirty three percent of almost of what people wanted. Okay, so one question that I get a lot is about crimps holding their shape in the oven. People take all this time to make a beautiful edge to their pie, and then they bake it, and they feel like the crimps just disappear. So a few different things. Um, The one thing is to, I always like to leave an excess amount of dough around the outer edge, about a half an inch of extra dough. Whether you're doing a single crust pie or a double crust pie, leave that half inch of excess, and then tuck it under itself all the way around. This gives you more dough around the outside edge, which not only makes it easier to crimp because you're physically working with a little bit more dough, it also just kind of gives you the help and support of a little bit of weight and gravity helps in this case that you have more dough and it just is going to hold its shape better. Um, I also would encourage people if you want really sharp crimps to do what they sometimes call a double crimp. And all that means is when you're done crimping, go back and do each one again because Touching it again and making them really pointy and sharp is going to give you the best chance of them holding in the oven when they're baking. And also just make sure that you chill that pie really, really well, because when it goes into the hot oven, the dough, obviously, if it's already warm or close to room temperature, it's going to be so much more prone to softening and melting um, and not holding its shape. So if you want really nice shape, make sure it's nice and chilled. I like to say like at least 30 minutes before I bake it and make sure your oven is nice and preheated and you haven't been opening the door a lot. And that should help. Got it. And are some of those tips also applicable to one of the other issues? The one I'm thinking of is um, butter seeping out. I I run into that problem a lot when I'm baking in other, you know, my family's done uh, a lot of Thanksgivings at Airbnbs. And so a lot of Thanksgivings were with different equipment, different ovens. And I feel like my most common personal problem was butter leaking out and like burning on the oven floor. Yes. And everybody hates this because it also, when the butter melts out, you typically end up with a firmer crust that's a little bit more cracker-like. It's not so much that it's tough, but it isn't tender like we want a a pie crust to be. So um, yes, uh, those couple things that I said, chilling for a really long time And also making sure that your oven is properly preheated and that it's warm enough. If you are baking in an unusual space, it's worth it if you happen to own one to bring an oven thermometer. I know that's not always possible, but if they're very inexpensive, they're only like $5. And when you're baking in a strange place, it definitely gives you a little bit of an understanding because it's actually so common for home ovens to fall out of calibration. And I've helped so many people you know, in the week of Thanksgiving messaging me, they get an oven thermometer and find that their oven was actually 50 degrees too cool or too hot. I mean, it's crazy the discrepancies that it can sometimes be. Um, So that's really helpful in knowing kind of what you're working with. But the biggest key to making sure that butter doesn't melt out of the crust is to make sure that each piece of fat 
is fully coated in flour at all times. And if you consistently struggle with this, one of the biggest things that you can do is just mix your fat in a little bit more thoroughly. When it's mixed in more fully, instead of leaving it in larger pieces, you will have an easier time keeping it coated in flour. And for people who struggle with this a lot, my Pat Brise recipe, which is on Food 52 and we talked about and Bake It Up a Notch, is one of the most foolproof. It's also a great one for people who have hot hands because I usually recommend making pie dough by hand, but this one's made in the food processor. So I use that one a lot, especially this time of year, because it's just really easy, you know, boop, 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 a couple presses of a button and I'm already to pie dough and it just is, is really lovely. Another one that I do like to recommend if people want a really flaky crust, but they struggle with the butter melting out is throwing uh, some lamination in it one or two times. And I know um, when we worked on the Genius Desserts book together, um, that that's also something that my friend Stella Parks does, and she laminates her pie dough lightly. So this isn't something I always do, but I learned about it in pastry school, and it's actually extremely helpful for people who are struggling with it. And as a bonus, it yields even flakier dough. So it's really a wonderful thing. It does take a couple of extra steps, but for people who are consistently having issues with these, those are two great doughs to go to. Okay, perfect. And does the type of pie pan or baking dish make a difference in in either of these issues too? Well, I personally prefer a metal pie pan is the most nonstick. And I find that it's easiest to get no soggy bottoms when you're working with a metal pan. That's one of the Mm. things that I have found. Ceramic is my second favorite. The only reason it's not right up there with metal is that some ceramic pans have a tendency to stick. The crust likes to stick to them. I have discovered that if you just use the tiniest bit, like use a paper towel or a cloth to just apply the tiniest bit of uh, oil or nonstick spray only to the base of the pan, not the sides. We don't want to put it on the sides because then the crust could slide down if the sides are greased. But just a little bit on the bottom can really help prevent it from sticking. And if it wasn't for that sticking issue, ceramic would be right up there for me with metal because I really like typically how it browns the crust and makes things bake really evenly. My least favorite is glass. And one of the reasons that it's fun to talk about this is when I first started working at Food 52, that was what I recommended the most to people was glass. And it was because I thought it helped people realize when things were properly baked because they could physically see, oh, the crust is brown. But I do find that people have more problems with butter melting out of the crust. Obviously, it's scary to put a glass pan into the freezer or fridge for a long time and then put it into an incredibly hot oven, even if it's tempered glass. So there's just some of these things that kind of make people nervous about it. Um, And I find that the results aren't quite as good as they are with metal or ceramic, in my opinion. So at my house, I have a lot of metal and a lot of ceramic pie plates only. (laughs) And this might be my problem because I have tended to default to glass for that reason. So I can peek at the bottom. So why, why do you think that is that the butter melts out with glass more? Well, I I actually think it has to do with a few different factors, the way the pan physically heats up. So again, if you're putting it, even if it was well chilled and you're putting it into a hot oven, you know, metal, it drives the heat a little bit faster and ceramic retains the heat really well. So you're just less likely once everything comes to temp in ceramic or metal for to continue to have problems, which is also not to say you can absolutely have butter melt out in a metal pan and melt out in a ceramic pan too. 
and you'll end up almost frying the pie crust in its own butter because it leaks out and you can see the butter in the bottom. So yeah, it's definitely a thing that happens. And I would say, you know, no need to get rid of those glass pie plates. They still would be great for so many baking applications. Hey, it's Kristen. We will be back with the rest of our conversation with Aaron in just a moment. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. And we're back with Erin Jean McDowell, who just came out with her newest cookbook, Savory Baking. So you touched on soggy bottoms a bit. Are there any other tips for avoiding soggy bottoms that we should keep in mind? Well, one of the kind of general tips is that you can uh, use a pizza stone or baking steel. The baking steel is actually my favorite. I also use it a lot for baking bread and other things. So it's fun to talk about this time of year because it makes a really, those things make a good gift for someone who really loves to bake, but they also then can have so much use out of just making pizza or just making bread because you can put those in your oven and not only will it help retain your oven temperature, even when you're opening the oven a little bit more frequently, which is always wonderful in baking, it really helps promote browning, uh, especially on the bottom of something. So baking any pie recipe on a pizza stone or baking steel is going to help drive more heat to the base and help you get uh, a more brown, golden and less soggy bottom crust. But the biggest piece of advice I can give is to make sure you bake your pies sufficiently. So uh, for single crust pies, that does mean par baking or partially baking the crust before you fill it. The par baked crust can actually hold for 24 hours because it's going to get baked again and it'll re-crisp. So it's just another thing that you can do to kind of work ahead of your pie. And with double crust pies, it's really just about baking them long enough. And I actually think this is one of the biggest mistakes most people make in pies. I think people get so scared of the high temperature And they get scared of how long the bake time is and they feel like this can't be right. But it's 100% needs so much time. Most apple pies or double crust pies will need, well, an hour at least, if not a little bit longer, to fully activate the thickener, which means that the thickener, the filling is bubbling inside. Um, It has to kind of come to a boil. And that should be enough time to also get your crust plenty brown and, and baked through. So that's, that's my best advice. If you want to avoid soggy bottoms and if you want to pass the sturdy pie challenge, which is so much fun and always 
so fun this time of year. I get lots of triumphant, like, ha ha, look at my pie. It's so sturdy. Um, that's really fun. And so it's a great party trick at Thanksgiving to be able to take your pie right out of the pie plate. And all that it requires is sufficient baking. If you bake it long enough, the crust will be, bo- will be brown and it will be set and it will be able to hold the filling and it's going to hold a slice a lot better too. Let's talk Thanksgiving leftovers. Uh, this one was actually kind of a landslide. Your audience very much wants to know about perfect pot pies, presumably with leftover turkey or yes. whatever was at the Thanksgiving meal. Definitely. I mean, I, I love a good pot pie, and I shouldn't have been surprised that when we ask people a question that they, they want to know more about pie, because that's that's pretty much what I've set up my, my followers on Instagram for. Um, and I do want to encourage people to kind of think outside the box when it comes to pot pie. Um, So traditional pot pie would be a filling with crust on the top, which is really, really great, but actually surprisingly difficult because when you're dealing with such a liquid gravy like filling, it's very difficult to get that top crust baked sufficiently because it's literally sitting on top of something that's creating a lot of steam and moisture Mm. as it bakes. So another thing that I like to encourage people to do is consider a biscuit topping for a pot pie. Um, In the savory baking book, I have a very easy drop biscuit that doesn't require any rolling or anything. You can make it in a food processor or you can make it by hand. It's just very, very flexible. And I like it because if you add a little less moisture to it, it's more crumbly and streusel-like. And if you add more, it's a little bit fluffier and um, cobbler-like, like a savory cobbler situation. On Food 52, I have a recipe for a very beautiful double-crust chicken pot pie that is made in a springform pan. It's very impressive, but still a very simple, basic pot pie um, in the scheme of things. And it's really delicious, obviously, with, with turkey. So I think that there's a lot of different great ways to do pot pie. And again, remember that you can customize them completely. Um, The other recipe that did did not win in the landslide, but still I think sounds so delicious and exactly what I want uh, for the day after Thanksgiving. (laughs) Can you tell us about that one? Yes, this is my recipe for thick, chewy noodles for soup. And so I was trying to say, would you rather learn to make pot pie or would you rather learn about these thick, chewy noodles that would make the best leftover soup. What I love about this recipe, um, during the pandemic, when a lot of people were really into making sourdough and were really into making um, banana bread and all those kinds of phases that people went through during the pandemic, I was making a lot of homemade pasta. And it made me uh, realize that I was really craving this one type of noodle that my mom used to make, which was very, very easy and very rustic can come together on a weeknight sort of situation. You really just pat out the dough, you cut them kind of into any size. So it really would be a great day after Thanksgiving activity when you're still with your family. And also for those people who don't have massive quantities of leftovers, I think soup is the best thing. If you actually plan really well and you don't have, you know, just tons of turkey left behind, this can make those things stretch a lot farther by putting them in soup form. But usually we all kind of need a detox the day after. And so there's nothing like chicken noodle soup to give you that little bit of of a detox or turkey noodle soup, as it were. Well, your book is like a perfect showcase of every single level of savory baking. I mean, it is a perfect book to have on hand for Thanksgiving and holiday baking and a perfect gift to give to people who want to get into more baking. 
Thank you, Erin, so much for joining us and holding our hand through all of these Thanksgiving scenarios that so many of us encounter. We will be more prepared this year. Of course, my pleasure. I'm so happy to help everyone with what ails them this time of year because it should just all be about cooking together, eating together, and, you know, having, having a great meal. And whatever route you take to get there, it shouldn't be filled with stress. It should just be filled with joy. Thanks for listening. And my thanks to Erin Jean McDowell for sitting with me for this episode. You can order your copy of her newest book, Savory Baking, at the link in our show notes. This week's episode is put together by me, Kristen McGlory, executive producer Harry Sultan, and with post-production by Crutch Phrase Studios. If you have a favorite thrice-buttered recipe, I would love to hear about it at genius@food52.com or by tagging me on Instagram at McGlorious. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes podcast, the very best thing that you can do to support us and to help other people find the show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review. Or just send this episode to someone who could use a pie pep talk right about now. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.